Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. This morning we will continue our study of verses 22 to 35, and what will be part two of what I believe will actually have to be a three-week study on this text. Um, partly because I think of its challenging nature to us, and partly because, precisely because it's challenging, we need to slow down and make sure we hear what Jesus is saying. Now, you'll find the notes in the, in the bulletin, and on the back of those notes is the text printed in full. If you don't have a Bible, I'd ask you to read with me as I read through Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's ask that the Lord might grant us ears to hear. Lord God, this is a hard word. And it's only by your spirit we can receive it, we can hear it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to look and not flinch, blink, or turn away and see what you have to say for us, that by your spirit we would receive these words as true, as good, as healthy. And Lord, that you would help us, looking in the perfect mirror of your word, to look at ourselves And not to walk away and forget what we see, but as we need to make changes, that you would grant us the faith, the repentance to act accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we began last week, and we'll continue this week, and we'll see how far we get. Again, I'm not sure we'll make it through all of my notes. Last week, I almost finished the first point, and we'll see what happens this week. Um, We have communion afterwards. But this is a challenging passage. This is probably the clearest and the most extreme Jesus has spoken about the cost of following him, about discipleship. He began speaking in these terms back, if you'll turn back to chapter 9, when after he first announced that he was going to die in Jerusalem, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders 
and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and raised, he then made it clear that not only would he follow a path of suffering and death, but that those who followed after him must be willing to as well. And he said to all, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And we see back in chapter 14, our passage uses the same metaphor of cross-bearing. In fact, the phrase that is repeated three times in this passage really focuses our attention on what we're looking at. What does it take or what does it require to be Jesus' disciple? Jesus puts it in the negative in verse 26, whoever does not hate his own father, mother, wife, child, brother, sister, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, we see that same phrase, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, therefore any one of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That threefold repetition making clear what we're looking at, the cost, the demands, the requirements of discipleship. And We spent some time last week, and we'll spend a little bit of time this week, not nearly as much, looking at then three questions that are raised by this. And the first, is Jesus' call to discipleship distinct from his call to salvation? Um, One of the ways that I've seen that, that Christians try to wrestle with passages like this is to suggest that perhaps this isn't about salvation, this isn't about heaven and hell, this is about discipleship. And in that schema of things, Christianity is kind of a two-step process. I mentioned how uh, shortly after becoming a believer, I went to Word of Life Bible Institute in upstate New York. That was their understanding. So on Friday night, they'd do a gospel call inviting children to ask Jesus into their hearts. And then on Saturday night, they would do the make Jesus Lord and become a disciple. And so they viewed this salvation as a two-step process. So under their schema, Jesus is not talking here about life, death, heaven, hell. He's simply talking about the difference between a saved non-disciple and a disciple. And we, we looked last week at how that doesn't work, even in the, the parallel passage in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus talks about picking up your cross. He says, you're going to lose your life or gain it. You're going to lose or gain your soul. The stakes are life and death. I'll just suggest one example, even in our immediate context, to make this clear. If you, if you see the flow of the argument in chapter 14, he's pronounced a judgment on the Pharisees. He went to a Pharisee's dinner party, and he pronounced a judgment. You see that judgment in verse 24, when he breaks out of the parable, looking them in the eyes, I tell you, and that you is plural, I tell you all, you Pharisees and lawyers, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. And the parable was there was a, a great landowner who, through a feast, he invited people, they indicated they'd come, but when it came time to come, they had all sorts of excuses, all sorts of things that are more important to them their property, their possessions, their relationships, to stop them from coming. And because they had all these excuses, they cannot ever come. Now notice the, 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 the flow of thought, the similarity. What is Jesus doing here? He's telling these people who are following them, you cannot likewise have things that are more important. You likewise, when God calls, can't say, but my, my house, my car, my oxen, my field, or even my wife. That's the connecting thought. I've just taken a wife, And then in verse 26, even your wife. Now, if we conclude that Jesus is not talking about heaven and hell, life and death, we must also then conclude that his judgment on the Pharisees is the same, that they may very well be saved. He's simply saying you're not disciples. And that doesn't work, does it? 
about the things Jesus has said against the Pharisees in Luke thus far. To think, no, no, the, save, the Pharisees may well be saved. They may well go to heaven. They just won't go to the kingdom. They won't go to the banquet. No. Being shut out of this banquet, being shut out of the kingdom is synonymous with damnation. We've seen that as we've gone through Luke. Now, Jesus is simply giving the same standard discipleship to these crowds that he was just giving them as the basis to the Pharisees on why they'd be rejected. Um, so Jesus' call to discipleship is his call to salvation. He's, he's focusing on what it means to enter into a relationship with God in the same way we talked about how you might sit down with a young woman or a young man thinking about getting married and saying marriage is not something to be entered into lightly, but with intention and purpose and understanding. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. Second question then, how are we to reconcile this passage with other New Testament calls? Given how difficult, challenging, rigorous, robust this passage is, how do we say that Jesus' demands here are the same thing as when he says, come unto me all you are weak and heavy laden and I will give you peace? How do we, how do we lie them together? I want to suggest to you that the next chapter, chapter 15, helps make some sense of that. Again, in the flow of the narrative, Jesus gives this difficult demand to the crowds. Look at how 15.1 begins. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So what we're seeing is some of these dregs of society are hearing Jesus' demands and accepting them, and they're coming to him. This is, as Jesus said in the parable of the wedding feast, how the, the master would go and invite the poor, the lame, the blind in the streets and those in the highways and byways to come to his banquet. You could almost put in the mouths of the Pharisees, this man is inviting sinners to his banquet. And then he gives them three parables with one point. There's the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the prodigal son. And look at the refrain in verse 10 and in verse um, 10 and in verse 7. We'll start with 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so what Jesus is doing in these parables is zeroing in on us to see what happens when somebody hears this message and they repent and they turn. And so therefore, the prodigal son, I think, is a wonderful picture of what it means to hear our text and to receive it, not to choke on it. And in the prodigal son, you know the story. We'll, we'll be there in a few weeks. Look at verse 17. He leaves his father, right, because he's blinded by the allure of, of profligacy, and he wants to go and drink and party and carouse with prostitutes and sinners. And in verse 17, when he came to himself, I love that phrase. It's as though suddenly his eyes open up and he sees what's going on. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. He doesn't even get to the chance to speak about, make me your slave. 
Well, I would suggest to you that this picture of the prodigal son is precisely a picture of someone hearing Jesus' demands. Because what does the prodigal do? He realizes that all these things that have kept him from his home, all these things for which he abandoned his father and his household, are pig slop, aren't they? And he doesn't come back to his father with a cup of wine in his hand and a harlot on his arm. He comes back to his father, I'll take whatever terms you give, I'll take whatever position in your household you'll offer, I just want to be home, I want to be with you. I see a loving father who, who brings him back and restores that relationship. We see exactly what's going on here. Someone who doesn't come seeking restoration with conditions, someone who doesn't come with demands, is exactly what Jesus just lays out in our passage. And I think you can lay that alongside this beautiful picture of the gospel is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And when we are given ears to hear, when we are given eyes to see, I think that we will see that all the things that glitter and shine and look like we're giving up so much are just pig slop. And we are offered Christ, and we're offered restoration, and we're offered adoption. <laughs> Who wouldn't gladly receive that when we see that? Third, and, I, and again, I think the prodigal son helps answer this as well, how do we reconcile this passage with justification by faith? We're saved by faith. Well, again, I think the prodigal son makes it perfectly clear that when, when he comes to his senses, when he finally sees what's going on, or to put it in our vernacular, when we finally believe Jesus' diagnosis of us, our sin, our problem, the death around us, when we finally see there's no works here. There's just faith and coming. And what Jesus is saying is if you really believe I'm God, if you really believe I am Lord, you're prepared to call me master, you're prepared to call me God, and understand the relationship we will enter into at that point, the reconciliation of our relationship will involve me being God, you being my subject, me, me being your Lord, and you being my slaves. And we're defining that relationship. And Jesus is crystal clear here, and we don't like this, we're uncomfortable with this, we like Jesus as our friend, he is our friend. We like him as only our friend. We're not a people accustomed to having lords, potentates. And yet God, is, if he's anything, is a king and a sovereign and a ruler. Now, Jesus doesn't always present his call to salvation using these terms, but I think it's, it's important to note why he does here. You see, here it's still popular to follow after Jesus. Even though there's controversy, even though there's debate, is he doing this satanically? Is he doing this um, through God's power? Is he a prophet? It's popular. People are following him. That's how the passage begins. Great crowds accompanied him. Where? To Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to suffer. And these people are going to scatter, aren't they? They're going to scatter when there becomes a cost account, when, when being a follower of Jesus isn't popular, doesn't get you credit with the society. They're going to scatter. And so in a, in a setting where enthusiastic people don't really understand what they're doing, Jesus is loving them by telling them, hey, hey, if you're going to be my disciple, this is what it means. If you're going to enter into a relationship with me, this is what it means. I would suggest to you that in the West, where it's still largely popular to be a Christian. The overwhelming majority of our country's populace would identify themselves as some form of Christian. This is precisely a word we need to hear. This type of warning goes without saying in countries where there's persecution. 
You don't, you don't need to say this to potential converts in Iran, but you do in the West. And even though Jesus doesn't always give his gospel presentations like this, he does frequently. And I'd ask you to think, is this how we speak of the gospel ever? In our homes, in children's ministry, in Awana? And I know we want to... We Get things down to a small, bite-sized, four spiritual laws, two truths, one way to live. But what about the people we see day after day, week after week at our table? Do we unpack this? Or have we so bought into sloganeering and bumper sticker theology that we don't know how to deal with passages like this? Well, that's why we're going to look, dive in and look at this. And for my own example, a particular reason why I care about this is I was a victim of precisely that type of shallow um, gospel. As far as I reach back in my, my memory as a child, I cannot remember learning. I know I did at some point, but as far as my memory goes back, an orthodox understanding of the facts of the gospel is there. Um, I, I, my mom won the tug of war with my dad, and I went to a Christian school for my elementary grades, and I can't remember learning. As far as I go back, yeah, Jesus is God's son, and he's God, and he lived a sinless life, and he died on a cross for my sins, and we're saved by faith apart from works, and he rose again on the third day. And the Bible is God's word, inerrant and true. All of that I not only knew, but would have thought I accepted or believed. And yet the Lord made clear to me as as my nature, my unregenerate, nature manifests itself more and more in my 20s that I didn't know him. I wasn't born again. There was new life in me. I was a profligate, much like the prodigal son there. I was a drunkard, immoral. And then I began to read my Bible and realize what the Bible speaks of as faith is much more vigorous, much more active, much more um, effective in what it produces than anything I had. We we live in a postmodern culture where people are used to believing contradictory notions. If there's ever a place to unpack and explain what faith is, what discipleship is, it's our culture, it's our day. And yet precisely because we want Christianity that's easy, we want a gospel that doesn't offend, we, uh, I think, are very susceptible to dumbing down and shaving off the sharp edges. So... Jesus gives three demands in this whole passage. Three cannot be my disciples and some illustrations to explain what he means. And I want to just um, review what we've looked through and then pick up where we left off last week. So the first demand, number one, verses 25 to 26. You must come to Christ with no greater love. Come to Christ with no greater love. And great crowds were accompanying him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We we talked last week about how um, Jesus does not mean hate in the sense of having angry feelings, bitterness, animosity. Rather, it's a Hebrewism, just as Genesis speaks of um, Jacob loving Rachel more than Leah, and in the very next verse, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, it's a way of speaking of a, of a disjunct, a significant difference between loves. And what Jesus is saying is our love for him has got to be the number one love of our life, and such that number two isn't terribly close. Practically what it means is when following and being faithful to Christ may compromise, sever, or damage our relationships with others, we follow Christ. 
Practically what that means is that husbands in following Christ may well invite animosity and conflict into their home. Wives, the same. Children. And this is a radical thing. If I'm being faithful in calling my children to salvation, I am calling them to love Jesus more than they love me, to obey and honor him more than me. That's a pretty radical thing. That's what we're doing in children's ministry. I mean, there's something subversive about it. If, if we could have our way, we would have other people's children have greater allegiance and honor to Christ than to their parents. Because that's absolutely what Jesus is demanding. If we're not willing to communicate that, then we need to examine ourselves. And this will play out. If we're going to address sin, if my wife is going to be faithful in addressing sin in my life, what's the real possibility that, that conflict may enter into our marriage? And the challenge for parents, if you're going to be faithful in rearing your children up in the discipline and knowledge of the Lord, that's going to be hard work. That's going to take time. And again, that may breed conflict. Isn't it easier just to make compromises? And Jesus is saying, no, I don't care what it does to your relationships. You be faithful to me. You, you, I, you are my disciple. Now I'm going to read a quote from a commentator talking about this. Um, James Edwards. Luke characterizes discipleship in terms of coming to Jesus. Notice that in verse 27, or comes to me. And this is a theme that's been introduced earlier, back in the Sermon on the Plain in 647, when Jesus said to his disciples, in effect, come to me, hear my words, and put them into practice. But back in chapter 6, that call is left open. A disciple might assume that coming to Jesus is one of several relationships that he or she might enjoy, and that hearing the words of Jesus are one of several words that he or she might hear. The full significance of coming to Jesus is sharpened in verses 25 through 35 with reference to three exclusive premises. In verse 26, coming to Jesus is defined in terms of hating father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even self. The call of Jesus takes precedent even over primarily, primary family and marital relationships. In verse 27, coming to Jesus is defined in terms of bearing one's cross, an image of discipleship introduced earlier. The cross is an instrument of suffering and shame and epitomizes the sacrifices required of a disciple in following Jesus. And in verse 33, coming to Jesus is defined in terms of forsaking earthly possessions. Coming to Jesus, in other words, means acknowledging Jesus as the preeminent relationship in one's life, whose costly mission determines the way of one's life and whose presence takes precedent over all things in life. In his shorter catechism, Luther summarized the teaching of Luke 14, 25 to 35, as the essence of the first commandment, to fear, love, and trust God above all things. That's, I think, really what's going on. You could view this as an exposition of the first commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And so we looked at the fact that every relationship, their God's relationships, are, are on the line. And, and we, we dare not flinch back from that. But I want you to notice how he ends that first demand. Not just those relationships, but even his own life. And we just barely started to look into this last week. What, what is Jesus saying? You have to hate your own life. And again, that sounds strange to our ears because we live in a culture that's convinced that your biggest problem is you don't love yourself enough. 
You ever think about that? We are convinced the biggest problem people have is they don't love themselves enough. Jesus says your biggest problem is you're not willing to hate yourself. What does he mean? I think what he means here, and here's your blank, is you must be willing to sacrifice every desire. All of us have dreams and aspirations. We have an understanding of who we are, self-picture, an identity. And yet, that may conflict with Jesus and his plans for us. You may have dreams. You may have intentions. You may have things you intend to do, you want to do, things you want to accomplish. And God may have different plans. Jesus is saying when you come to him, you come not with those demands. And I've been thinking this week in particular um, about this. You ever stop and consider one of the reasons why um, the LGBT community finds um, Orthodox biblical Christianity so difficult is precisely for them this point is made in spades abundantly clear. The Lord's given me some opportunity in the past to spend some time talking with some of the folks in that community, and they get it. In a culture that tells you that your sexuality is your innermost identity. You get that. The culture we live in today tells you over and over and over and over. Your sexuality is your identity. And people believe that. And then when they come to Christ, what they learn is, you're saying, and I've had these conversations, you're telling me every single inclination and desire I have for intimacy, for relationship, and for romance is wrong or needs to be suppressed, or needs to be crucified. And I have to give them the hard answer, yes. I want to follow that up by God will give the grace, God will give the help, God's spirit will empower, God's people will encourage. But make no mistake that for people in that community thinking about coming to Christ, this self-denial, self-hatred is a very real thing. That in every area of who they know themselves to be, you're saying that needs to be submitted to Christ. If it disagrees with God and his word, You need to spare it no quarter, give it no sympathy. It needs to die, right? And we we get that. What's the other option? We can tell people, no, you can embrace your identity and follow Christ. No, Christ is clear to them. We need to to do the same thing ourselves so that when people in those communities look into our churches, they see a group, group of people who also are dying and denying themselves. And what does this look like? How, How might this play out? This means dreams of marriage. If you're single, it's not a bad desire. But will that be a demand that you hold up in God's face where you trust him to do what is good? Desire for children. These are big, hard things. People in marriages where they're not in love anymore. People in difficult places. I can think of many contexts, and what Jesus is saying is, you've got to be willing by faith to trust God with your life without demands. And if he doesn't give you what you want, if you don't get to embrace your dreams, if you don't end up in your 30s and 40s where you expected you'd be, yeah, there's going to be some sorrow there. And yeah, we need to comfort and encourage one another. But it's not as though God lied or tricked us. Jesus right up front said, understand, you get the kingdom. You get me. There's no guarantees for anything else. We must be willing to sacrifice every desire. Who you want to be and what you mean to do, there's no guarantee. God grabs Paul, commissions him as the apostle to the Gentiles, and then sidelines him in jail for years in Roman, in a Roman jail. You can imagine the frustration. Why, why you got me on the bench, God? Get me out there. 
God says, no, trust me, i got work for you to do in here. There's, there's letters that we have in our New Testament that would have never been written if Paul hadn't been jailed. I don't think Paul understood that's what God was doing. And you can read Christian biography after Christian biography of God doing things that initially look hard and difficult and challenging. And yet he's always good. And the mark of discipleship is what we will lay down our lives. We will sacrifice our desires. We can, like Jesus, not my will but yours be done. Jesus is, again, not calling us to any standard he has not set already for us. We must have no greater love. Okay, point two. It's not going to get any easier. You must follow after Christ in suffering. You must follow after Christ in suffering. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's important to remember that at this point in history, the cross was not associated with Christ and Christianity. Other than his one statement in chapter 9, there was no associations. Nowadays, no one gets crucified, at least not in the first world. And so the only associations we have with the cross is a piece of jewelry if you're Catholic, Jesus is on it. If you're not, he's off. And people wear it, and people might have a tattoo or a shirt, and that's, that's a cross. And so we speak of our cross to bear, and maybe it's your mother-in-law, or maybe it's the slow driver in front of you. Understand, in this instance, they had seen crucifixions. And what a crucifixion was, was simply put, the most painful, agonizing, shameful, embarrassing, and awful way to die that Rome had come up with. That's what Jesus is saying. Point A, it means you must bear and not cast off your own cross. He doesn't even just say be crucified, because part of the crucifixion process was after being scourged and whipped, you were required, if you were physically able, to hoist up on your shoulder the cross beam and carry it to the place of crucifixion. I don't know about you, but if I found myself in a place where someone was intent on crucifying me, I would not likely want to participate. I mean, what are you going to do? Kill me if I don't move it? You pick up the crossbeam yourself. Maybe I can get this thing over faster. So what Jesus is saying is, not only do you have to be willing to suffer, but you lean into it. You're picking up that crossbeam and you're carrying it to the hill. You're not running away from suffering. But when you recognize it as God's call in your life, you're, you're willing to move towards it just as Jesus did, just as he did. Point B, you must follow his example of obedient suffering. Now, Jesus said earlier in chapter 6 this, and we do well to remember it, a disciple is not above his teacher but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so understand that if you or I are unwilling in principle to suffer, to face that, when, when where God seems to be calling us seems too hard and we say, no, won't go there. And I, and I get this. You do pastoral counseling and you get this. You hear people say, I, I've, I've put up with this person as long as I can, no more. Can't, no, not, I'm not talking, and I want, to make, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about the person who's struggling, the person who's discouraged, the person who's having a heart. I'm talking about the person who's seriously considering saying, no, no more. I'll, I'll end this marriage before I go any further. No more. I'm, I'm not going to deal with this any longer. 
that what you're saying is I have more rights and I am greater than my Lord. I mean, he could be crucified, but not me. He could suffer, but not me. No student, no disciple is above his teacher. But everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Turn, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Must follow his example of obedient suffering. Point one there, a disciple will be like his teacher. A disciple will be like his teacher. I mean, that's, that's what the term Christian means. The, the early Christians were called Christians um, pejoratively as a rude thing. But, but the point is we're little, little Christs. We're, we're, we're taking on the image of the one we follow. The student becomes like the teacher. In the Roman world, anyone who was crucified was despised, so they mocked the followers of Christ by calling them Christians. I want you to see something. and The New Testament is clear on this. Um, but again, has anyone, in, in, in calling you to become a Christian, ever pointed out what we're going to see right here? Peter, in 1 Peter 2, is doing an extended treatment on submitting in suffering to authorities in life. And so verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors. And then he goes on to give some specific examples. So verse 18, servants or slaves, be subject to your own masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows with suffering unjustly. And you can imagine if you're a slave and your master beats you for no good reason, you'd be thinking about running away. It's not what Peter says. Now go on. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God is pleased when anyone suffers unjustly. And then look at 21. For to this you have been called. What's this? Unjust suffering. To this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Jesus is telling these crowds, I am going to suffer and die. And you need to be prepared to do the same. Will we follow Christ's example, or do we have better rights than him? Is the student greater than the teacher or not? Do you want to become more like Jesus? This is the path we follow. That's, that's the next point. Point two, suffering is part of God's plan for disciples. It's not incidental. It's not accidental. It's precisely how God will conform us to the image of Christ. And it's precisely how God authenticates the gospel message. No one's impressed when rich, healthy, blessed people praise God. People sit up and take notice when suffering, persecuted people praise God. I mean, listen to the testimony from Acts. The early church, Peter and John, get arrested and beaten. And in Acts 5.41, when they were left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And the apostle Paul gets converted on Damascus Road, and the Lord sends Annas to him. And he says, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. Turn, turn to Romans 8. This stuff's all over the New Testament, and we gloss over it. I'm going to show you a passage that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And there's one little phrase in it that I'm, I would not be surprised if many of you never noticed was there. 
Romans 8, the wonderful passage of the new covenant, the Spirit. Verse 15 and 16 and 17, right? You know this passage, but do you? If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Keep reading. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I hear people all the time quote, we've got a spirit of adoption. We cry out, Abba, Father. And in that same context, Paul says, yeah, but we, we, the, God's purpose and plan is suffering. And it's necessary that we go through that, that we're willing to go through that. Suffering is part of God's plan for his disciples. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In God's goodness, this last week, he pointed out some areas in my life that I um, was not submitting to him. Some areas had carved out, and by his grace, I was able to, to repent and make some changes and not be a total hypocrite here and now. I'm sure there are other areas in my life, and as God shows them, well, I will endeavor by faith to, to grow and to cast things off, put things on that need to be put on. But we're not, we're not free agents. We're going to pause here in our study of this passage because we need to move to communion. But is this... What you understood when you came to Christ, is this the relationship that you believe you've entered into? And Jesus is using explicit, absolute terms. Anyone, everyone, cannot be. Are you his disciple? And the reason I ask is this meal that we're about to transition into is a meal for disciples. It's a meal for those who've come to Christ. It's a way by which we identify that we are those who have shared in his death and will likewise share in his resurrection. We're those who feed on Christ, find our strength from him. Are are we those people? And I, I warn you because Paul warns the Corinthians that by not understanding what they're doing, by, by blaspheming, as it were, treating lightly the Lord's table, many were sick and many died. So we're going to take a moment as we transition. We're going to stop. I'm just going to pray and give you a moment to pray and look at yourself in the mirror, the mirror of God's word. Now, now, please don't misunderstand. This is not something we do perfectly. Paul, I mean, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter will deny Christ later in Luke's gospel. But this is something that when we see we've erred, when we see we've missed the mark, when we see we have disobeyed, we get up, we confess, we repent, and we pursue Christ again. If that's where you are, praise God and join us in this meal. But let's just take a moment and examine ourselves in the light of God's word.